Everyone else, you don't have to sing on Tuesday on stage unless you want to. But until then, you're invited to turn in a Bible to Isaiah chapter 7. Right there in the middle of your Bible, Isaiah chapter 7. While you're turning there, I'll tell you that some of what you're going to read in Isaiah chapter 7 is going to sound familiar. Most of what you're going to read in Isaiah chapter 7 is going to sound really unfamiliar. But I want you to know that our text this evening is an invitation to faith in the face of fear and worry. And more than that, it's really an invitation to let God prove his love for us. Hopefully by the end of this message, you'll see not only an invitation to faith in the face of fear, but that invitation is valid because God has proven his unfailing, unending love to us. Before we get into this text, I do want to talk a little bit about fear and worry because I think we all have a lot of experience with it, right? We have a lot of experience with fear and worry that begins early on. It's almost human nature, second nature. We've been experiencing it in the Wood household every single morning when we wake up to get ready for school. I'm not lying to you. Every morning for a month, Nora opens her eyes when we turn on their little light, and she goes, are we late or early? Those are the first words out of her mouth. And we're like, you literally have been awake for one second. We're starting on time. It's okay. We're here. We're right on time. So now Amy's just gotten into saying we're lurly. We're not late. We're not early. We're just right on time. We're lurly. So this is what's happening at 6 a.m. in the Woodhouse every morning. We're walking around saying we're lurly. It's lurly. But we realized she's very anxious about this. And so we started to ask her after a few days of this, and we realized that some of the kids in her class were getting in trouble for being late. And they would come in late because they'd have to go to the office, and their parents would have to sign this thing. And if you get 10, then you're in trouble, and you get a letter, and you get a this. And she's seeing this happen more and more frequently the colder the mornings are and the harder it is just to get up and out the door. And so this has worked its way inside of her little mind and consciousness to where the first thing she says is, are we late or early? She's afraid to get in trouble. Isn't that the thing, that there's a fear at the root of our worries? What's the thing that you've been worried about this month? Like, what's the thing, right? It's a, it's a meme now to talk about how stressful and crazy it is in December, right? As soon as Black Friday hits, it just sets the tone for an insane season of worry and stress in the most wonderful time of the year. And I think underlying all of that is a fear that we won't do enough or have enough, a fear that this sickness is going to get worse. What's your pet worry this past month? Is it rooted in some fear? Let me ask you another question. Think back, and is that thing that you dreaded, did it happen? Has it happened yet? 
If it has happened, was it as bad as you thought? If we're really honest, how much of our worries are conflated and bigger than reality? But it's just human nature, isn't it? King Ahaz, y'all say Ahaz. He's a man that worried. He worried big time. He was a king in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the capital city of Jerusalem. A couple weeks back, we talked about how there was a civil war after King David and a couple of his sons that split into the northern tribes and in the southern tribes. The northern tribes get wiped out by an enemy superpower first. The southern tribes get wiped up by Babylon second. But this is this weird season in Israel's history where King Ahaz is down in the southern kingdom of Jerusalem and he's freaked out. He's freaked out because some of his neighbors to the north are trying to gather a gang of small tribes and nations to fight the big bully on the schoolyard called Assyria. Because Assyria is just wiping people out left and right. Ahaz is down there in Jerusalem, and that little gang of small tribes and nations come down to Ahaz and said, dude, they've already kind of wrecked us. Let's fight back. Are you going to join our gang? And King Ahaz is like, hold on a second. And King Ahaz goes to the big bully on the playground and said, guess what? All these little guys are about to jump you after school tomorrow. So what do you say we work together because you're stronger than them and, you know, let's try to work something out. Well, guess who gets wind of it? All of those northern tribes and neighbors. So they are ready to kill King Ahaz and say, let's get somebody in Jerusalem that'll join our team. So now King Ahaz is stuck between the biggest bully on the playground and the little bullies, and he is worried. He is freaked out. And God meets him in his fear and says, here's our plan. You ready? Do nothing but trust me. And Ahaz goes, no thanks. But God says in Isaiah 7, chapter 9, no, seriously, have faith in me or fall. He says it this way. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That's what he says in Isaiah 7, 9. Here's what you need to understand about faith before we get into our primary text and an invitation of faith in the face of fear. Faith is not just something to be believed, we say in our church, but it's something to what? To be lived. You need to understand this. When God says, have faith, he says, don't just believe it. I want you to have a practical reliance in contexts beyond your capacity. Faith is not just an intellectual, I believe God the Father Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth. It is a practical reliance on God the Father in context beyond our capacity in everyday life. Let me say it to you even more plainly. It's to say, God, 
I'm trusting you even though I don't have enough, even though I can't do enough, even though I can't see the way forward, even though I can't see you. I'm going to have reliance that you will pull me through even if it gets darker before it's lighter. It's enough practical reliance to say, I'm going to trust you to take the next right step of your way, even though it's difficult. Faith is something that moves us and moves us even when it doesn't make sense. Beyond our capacity means I'm going to trust God for eternal life because none of you can muster that up on your own. That's why faith saves us. You with us? Grace through faith gives you something you can't do beyond your capacity. Amanda's talking about seeing God in everyday life. A practical reliance to wake up and realize that he's sustaining us. We have life. We have breath. I'm going to trust you even though I can't see you. Not just to believe, but to be lived out. What that looked like for King Ahaz was to do nothing. Don't go align yourself with an enemy superpower. Don't go fight back against your northern neighbors. Trust me, do nothing. That's hard. Now, he's inviting him to faith when only fear makes sense. But here's a gift. You ready? God says, okay, let me prove it to you. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, which is the beginning of our primary text tonight, after God invites him to faith, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, the worried, terrified king. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. God says, okay, let me prove it to you. This is what God says. Now, this week I was at Our Calling. Once or twice a month I go down there early on a Wednesday morning and I sing songs and lead worship with a couple hundred homeless folks that come in out of the cold to begin their day of showers and meals and uh, resources with a church service. And I began to talk about Luke chapter 2 that says, unto us a child is born. And I said, you know who these angels said it to? A bunch of people who slept outside. Shepherds who got the last bit of news. They get the first bit of news that a king has been born to them. This is great news, okay? We sing our songs. Everybody's up. Oh, it's great. We're praying. Wonderful. I go sit down. The guy that works on staff at our calling that has been there for many years, he's a great guy. His name is Jeremy. He gets up to preach and he says, I need to tell you something. Y'all don't believe what Adam just said. Y'all don't believe what we just read in Luke chapter 2. I'm sitting there in the back having sung and done this whole thing as a preacher. And I said, what a terrible intro. Where is he going with this? Whoops. And he goes, I'm looking out here and I know you don't believe it. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll wait to go to the bathroom. What's about to happen? And he goes, better yet, let me ask you guys why you don't believe it. He goes, I want you to be honest. Because when you hear unto you, 
Many of you are sitting there saying, not unto me. When you hear that there's a prince of peace that's been born, you're out there going, uh, doesn't look like it. He goes, I want you to tell me why you don't believe that this king can be for you. And around the room, people said, you want us to be honest? And he goes, yes. And all the answers ranged from, because we slept outside last night, to because he hasn't done anything about to the greedy folks in power that have the money, time, and resources to help alleviate poverty and homelessness, and yet here we are, and everything in between. One guy stood up in the back and said, you know, it's one thing to hear it in these Bible studies and on Wednesday mornings, it's another thing to go live it on the streets. And Pastor Jeremy, to his credit, is going, yeah, wow, mm mm-hmm, next. Then he points to a woman in the back, and she goes, it's kind of like Santa Claus. Everybody starts laughing, because we got Christmas trees up, and it's beautiful. And she goes, it's like Santa Claus, because it's nice when you're a kid, but when you grow up, you realize maybe that's just another thing your parents told you to make you feel better. God's like Santa Claus. Then we had another lady in the back Talked about it's hard to see the light of the world in a crack house. Then you have another woman up front say, you know the difference between the church and the crack house. You need to stay in the church. Then another person stands up over here and says, well, if church actually talked about my real everyday life, maybe we could do this. I mean, it's getting real in this room. And to Pastor Jeremy's credit, he listened. And he said, okay, let me tell you this. Forgive me for every time that we have written a check that we can't cash. Because there's conversations around there when people say, so-and-so has been healed and set free and worked out of their addiction, but I haven't. And they're starting to learn that you can't just write a check that says, hey, trust God and he'll magically fix everything instantly. That's not God's will for every person in every situation. So he says, forgive us for writing checks that we can't cash because we can't prove it to you. But his message was, will you let God prove it? Which is perfect because I'm still in the back of the room and saying, this is what I'm preaching, yes! And I just start writing notes. This is gonna be my intro. You're welcome. God says, This person may not prove it. That person may not prove it. Isaiah might not have been able to prove it. You want me to prove it? Ask. And I love what Ahaz does. I'm good. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Don't you love when we're holier than God is? We've talked about Peter in Acts chapter 10 when the Lord sends him this vision. He's on the roof. Y'all remember this in Joppa? Rise, Peter. Eat the buffet. And Peter's like, no, no. I've never had anything unclean touch my lips. And Jesus is like, just eat the shrimp. This is what is happening here. How does it look in our everyday life? How does it look in America? It looks like all the rules that we add on top of the simple way of loving God and loving neighbor. I told someone recently in our neighborhood that was asking, what does your church believe? Like, what does it believe? I'm like, what? What? Look at our website? I don't know. How do you answer that question? How would you answer that question? 
Basically, we got down to this two sentences. I said, I think the trajectory of the neighborhood church is this. God is infinitely bigger than we've ever imagined. He's infinitely more loving and more expansive and complex and great and wonderful than we could ever imagine. Yet, the way he's asked us to live is so much simpler than we've made it. All these churches go out there for the new law and the new commandment to come down the mountain. And Jesus, the word of God made flesh, doesn't just tell us, he shows us. And God doesn't just promise, he's proving it in the embodied expression of love that came down in humility and entered into our neighborhood. Ahaz was trying to play by rules that God is wanting to supersede. You need to understand it's probably not a good idea to walk around this week saying, God, if you want me to love my neighbor, show me a sign in three, two, one, and sorry, I'm going to go watch Netflix and not love my neighbor. This is a bad strategy. But don't we do this in some big ways or small ways? Haven't you at some point in your journey with Jesus said, I will if, I will but, God hasn't this or God hasn't that. I think a better way of thinking about testing is tasting. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. When Jeremy says to a room full of homeless people, let God prove it, you may not get a sign on the table like God is offering to Ahaz for reassurance from the deepest depths or the highest heights. But every day is an invitation to taste and see that God is infinitely better and bigger and more expansive than you ever realized and that you know what to do, you goober. It's so much simpler than we've made it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God is just going above and beyond for a terrified, worried king but okay, we'll still talk about allowing God to prove it when we can't. Now, the conversation continues in Isaiah chapter 7, but this time it's Isaiah. Now, this is important. God said, I'll give you a sign, you name it, I'm here. I want you to know. Be reassured. And then Ahaz is like, I'm good. I, I would never put you to the test. Isaiah goes, dude. Shut up, you goober. God is willing to show you, and you're refusing to look. Oh, actually, let's just read it. That's a bad translation. You ready? <laughs> Hear now, you house of David. Pause. He's calling the king in Jerusalem, David's town. Yeah, he's from Bethlehem, but he's the king over Jerusalem. He's from David's kingly line. God promised that David would have a king, and a king forever, hold on to that. Listen now, you house of David, that God has promised to keep you and someone like you on the throne forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans running around to Assyria, running around to your northern neighbors? Will you also try the patience of my God also? And then Isaiah says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. I love this. Ahaz doesn't want it. God offered it. God's still gonna give it to him, right? How many things has God given you that you never asked for? How many things that God has 
been bending over backwards to show you and you haven't looked. And I don't mean this in an ugly way, in a nasty way. I try to wake up every morning the last couple weeks with these two words, thank you. Because it's a practical reliance. Every night I lay myself down to sleep and I say, God, would you protect us, protect this house, protect these girls. I can't do it on my own. It's beyond my capacity, but I will lie down trusting you. And when I rise up, I realize that the world has been spinning for hours without me. And so I join the day that God has given and I say thanks because I didn't deserve it or will it into existence. And God gives and God gives. And God gives you that deposit that went into your bank account. And he gives and he gives. And we should be practicing Thank you, thank you. I'm really bad at it. I've had to be really intentional about it. Because every other day of my life, I wake up like my sweet little daughter, Nora. Are we late or are we early? But guess what? Nora got reminded that she's never been late. You don't need to fear. Ahaz gets reminded. You don't need to fear. Here's the sign. Here's the part that's familiar to you. Ready? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. If I was to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 7, you'd say, what in the world is happening? What this? And then we get to that line, and you're like, oh, this? This week I read a Jewish commentary on this passage. And it says, so this sign that God gives, it's really of no greater import than any of the other prophecies Isaiah's done, but the Christians, it's a huge deal to them. Like literally, I'll show you in, at my house, it's like that's the comment on this. I mean, it's pretty nice. That's awesome what God did to Ahaz a few hundred years ago in history, but like these Christians, man, they're freaking out about it. Why? Because, oh, we'll get there in a minute. The virgin now, in Hebrew, that's basically a young woman of marrying age. She's a woman that is young and unmarried. And we don't know who she is. We don't know who this son was. But we know that it made sense to Ahaz. It made sense to Isaiah. And here's what you need to understand. His name, Emmanuel, means what? God with us. Now, when he continues talking about this child in verses 15 to 16, he says, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Let me tell you why I've never preached this passage even though it has the famous Emmanuel text. Because after we say, oh, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and he will be called God with us. This is beautiful. This is powerful. We read about curds and honey and right and wrong. And I never knew what to do with this. Let me tell you, the sign that made sense to Ahaz, that made sense to Isaiah, listen, is a visible reassurance running around the palace hallways that every time Isaiah sees this child named Emmanuel, he's reminded to do nothing, do not fear, relax. The trouble and the worry that you have feared will be brought to nothing. Here's how Ahaz is going to be sure of it. Look at these verses on the screen and listen to the Adam translation. Emmanuel 
will eat curds and honey in peace, living a peaceful, normal life. And by the time he's potty training, your threats and the worry and all the fears and the anxiety that has kept you up at night will be whispers and brought to nothing, faint memories. Those who are threatening you today will not be a blip on your radar in about two years' time. That's all he's saying. Look at this child running around and remind yourself, God is with me. Oh yeah, God's with me. Especially in the midst of your fear and worry. Especially in those two years. Because faith is not just intellectual. It's to be reminded of the God who is proving it in myriad ways, in myriad days, all throughout our lives, that I am with you. Look up and see God doesn't just promise his unending love. God proves it. And maybe you don't have a little Manny running around. But what is it in your life that you need to train yourself to see as a visible reassurance that God has got this? It's easier with some of our friends that have struggled with infertility. When they receive these child, these, these children, they say, oh yeah, God was faithful when for 12 years we cried and cried and begged and begged. But some of them, it's a literal kid. What is it for you? For me, it's just been waking up in the morning saying, thank you. That's my first prayer. Sometimes it's just taking a breath and being reminded that he's still sustaining us. And in him, we live and move and have our being. And it may be bad now, but it could be so much worse. God doesn't just promise an unending love. He proves it. And there's these visible reminders of faith in the midst of fear. Y'all know the song by John Mark McMillan called How He Loves? We've sung it in here a lot. It's been a little while, but it's made famous by David Crowder. But you need to know that John Mark McMillan wrote it, and he recorded a few different versions of it. And there's a version that he recorded way back several years ago on one of his earlier albums, and it has a verse that didn't survive the previous re-recordings. But it hints at the story behind the song. The story behind the song, I won't get into all the details. There was a video clip that went viral when he was talking to a group of 70,000 students about his friend, Stephen, who was talking about his love for God, his passion, how he would give his life so that all people would know. And that very night, he died in a car wreck. Now, We're so quick to draw the causality and the A and the B and God took him. And I don't know any of the mystery and the ways in which God is fully at work in this world. But I do know that God uses all things. And in the midst of that grief, when John Mark McMillan gets the news that his friend Stephen, who had been talking with him earlier that day, had died... He sits down and he writes a song that's not how he hates us because I lost my friend. He wrote how he loves us, even in the midst 
of the depth of pain of losing someone you love. And the verse that I mentioned earlier that's recorded at the very end of the very first time he put this song to tape has these words. I thought about you the day Stephen died and you met me between my breaking. And I know that I still love you, God, despite the agony. There's a few of them who tell me you're cruel. And at this point, he is weeping. And then he says, but if Stephen were here, he'd say it's not true. And he trails off until he starts singing again. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. God proves his love to us exactly in the context of struggle. Because love shows up and stays put and enters in in a shepherd who doesn't say, oh, here's the valley of the shadow. Why don't you go on? I'll meet you on the other side when we get back to green pastures. No, 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 no. The shepherd walks the valley with us. And the trick is to live our lives in the everyday in such a way to train ourselves to see the visible reassurances of God's goodness and love so that when the valley comes, when the Stephen dies, you're able to have trained that muscle enough to say, even in the agony, even when my friends are saying you're cruel and this isn't how it ought to be, we can still say he loves us. I don't know how to explain away the problem of evil, but I know how to start to untangle it. Our God does not sit above, our God enters in. Our God tasted death so that he might bring us up into new life. Any faith or religion that doesn't have a God who enters in to feel the pain, to feel the worry, to feel the fear, and say in solidarity, I'm with you, is a faith that does not look like the true God of the universe who is holding all things together and bending it toward renewal. This is what Advent is about as we wait in the darkness. God doesn't just promise his unending love. God proves it. And Jesus, the one who entered in, is proof of God's love. He's God with us in our fear, darkness, and brokenness. The reason why How He Loves became so famous was not just because of that story that kind of made the rounds. Then David Crowder recorded it. It came famous because of a crazy lyric. You know which one I'm talking about? Y'all, when I was in seminary in 2009 and 10, I was taking a Christian view of art class, and this is when this song was getting popular, and this song got trashed in my seminary because of one phrase, and the meter of it, and oh, is it even good art, and oh, it's not really singable, it's not like these hymns, and here's the line, heaven meets earth like a what? Sloppy wet kiss. That's gross, isn't it? It's messy, isn't it? And just this week, I heard from Pastor Jeremy, in fact, talking about the sloppy wet kiss line. You know what it made him think about that I never thought about? 
You got it. And did I miss this memo? I'm sitting over here singing Unforeseen Kiss, and you guys get that this is like an infant child with drool and gross and spit up when I say, here, Amy, can you wipe her and then I'll take her back? This is God embracing the mess, becoming the mess in a child. Heaven meets earth in an infant child. And they kiss and embrace justice, mercy, kissing, meeting. And then our response to this is my heart turning violently inside of my chest. Can I even conceive of God becoming one of us, not just with us? And then I love this, and I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way that he loves us. Us. You will never have proof of why that person is struggling and suffering over there and that person in that country over there. And this, You will never figure it out. Read Job. God doesn't give him all the answers. But do know this. God doesn't just sit above it. God entered into it. God tasted it so that God could pull us through it and out the other side into resurrection. Hello, this is the Christian faith. We don't just have emptiness and just be numb to it like our Buddhist friends. It's about feel it because God has become it and God recycles it into resurrection. And when you think about how he didn't just promise this love, he proved this love, all this mess that you're carrying, when you hold it into that kind of ocean of God's love, it kind of should dissipate. Because God not only has entered into the mess, he's loved you in spite of your mess. This is forgiveness. This is good news. Yes, homeless friends at our calling, this is a God unto you. Yes, you sitting here at the neighborhood church. Yes, you there at the rock. The 300 people we saw, every single one of them, made in the image of God, longed for by God, loved until the bitter end by God. So Matthew, when thinking about this person, Jesus, he's followed and seen in the mess, sets down to write the gospel, and he knew Mary, and he asks Mary about that visit from the angel. Maybe Joseph had already died by this point, so he's asking aunts and uncles and cousins. And he recounts this story passed down in Matthew chapter one. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, from David's line, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus which means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place, Matthew says, oh, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Oh, that virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him not just Jesus, but Emmanuel, God with us, heaven kissing earth. The angel in Luke chapter 2 said to these shepherds, like my homeless friends who slipped outside, don't 
be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, but also a part of King Ahaz's realm, a Savior has been born to you, and He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Jesus enters the world bloodied. It's messy. He enters into the world in the arms of the mother of God, a young woman, virgin. Jesus enters naked in humility, emptied. And then he's wrapped in cloths and laid down into a borrowed feeding trough. God proves his love in incarnation. But he didn't just promise his unfailing love, he proves it. And when this boy grows up more and more aware of his vocation to be the Messiah, the anointed king, the king that they've always been waiting for, the king that his people had hoped for, he doesn't come through the palace, he doesn't come through the big schools, he comes through the trade school, he comes as a refugee, he comes and he grows up and he's baptized, he's anointed, the spirit of God is upon him, he moves into Jerusalem, the holy city, to wage war on the dark forces opposed to God and opposed to the least and the less left out and the lost, opposed to the religious system that is confused and confounded and weighed heavy burdens on people. He's come to simplify the message. It says, get on board with God's kingdom. I'm the king. I'm more than what you ever imagined. I love you and revealing a God to you that is longing to welcome the prodigal home and they kill him for it. You'll see the shows. Oh, he claimed to be God. They killed him because he embodied the love and justice of God, and we couldn't handle it. The crucifixion of Jesus is the deepest revelation of how we hate what we're supposed to love. And he says, Father, forgive them. And he exits this world bloodied, And he commits himself into the arms of the Father. He's stripped naked on a rough-hewn piece of wood. And they lower his body and wrap him in cloths. And then they placed him into a borrowed tomb. Because God proves it not just in incarnation, but in crucifixion, that we have a crucified God. So that Paul, when hearing the stories, when reflecting back on the risen Christ that he encountered, hearing the stories of Matthew and Mark and Peter and John, he sets down to write a letter talking about how love and justice has kissed in the person of Jesus and how through faith, that practical reliance on the God who does things beyond our own capacity, he writes this. But God demonstrates or shows or proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then John, who walked with Jesus in the mess, he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. 
Not that we drummed up all our love for God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, then, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's so much bigger and so much simpler. You want to know what love is? You want to know how God proves his love? God with us became God died for us so that we might live in God within us today. God doesn't just promise his unending love. God proves it. Jesus is the proof of God's love. God with us in our fear, in our darkness, in our brokenness, who tasted death so that he might bring us through death. So you need not be afraid. You need not be worried. You need not doubt. You need to look only to Jesus to be reminded of God and how he's proven his love for you. I want to close with a story I've shared before, but I can't go through an Advent or Christmas season without sharing it again. It's a man that I met briefly, maybe 35 minutes all told, a couple years ago at a conference through our church network. We were in a small workshop, and there was a man about my age who was in a wheelchair, but he hadn't been born paralyzed. He became paralyzed through a tragic accident. And in the last question in this workshop, he raised his hand and began to share his story. And he told our small little gathering about how he went through a deep, dark depression when he was confined into a wheelchair. And he could not pull himself up and out of it. It was beyond his own resources and capacity. So a good friend of his said, listen, man, I can't prove it in so many words, but you've got to find some way that God can prove it and meet you and pull you up out of it. He said he felt like he was sinking and drowning and he could not get up to the surface. So his friend said, you need some kind of lifesaver raft that's floating up there on the surface that you can get your hand on to help you pull yourself up. And that life raft needs to be something about Jesus. So this man in the wheelchair got to thinking about it, and he said, I was always fascinated by the incarnation. It's always a fascinating theological experiment that Jesus emptied himself to become one of us. But he said, one time I was in the deepest depression I'd had in that season, And so I took my friend's advice and I started grasping at that lifesaver, which was Jesus in the incarnation. And he heard a voice that said, I became disabled for you. And he said, it was just enough to get my fingers up over there. And it pulled me up because God became disabled for me. And uh, I did this in the workshop. (laughs) And that makes sense. I was doing this. It was a long, it was Missio Alliance. It was long. I was already tapped. And then this dude said, God became disabled for me. God became disabled for us. Almighty and everlasting God in a drooling, sloppy child. So that you might see him and know that he has not only been there, but he's here with you now. And that he's known sickness and hurt and harm and betrayal and death. So that when you experience sickness and harm and betrayal and death, 
He'll be with you and he'll pull you through because God has proven his love to us in Jesus. Father, we are so grateful for this time together and this reminder in the midst of a busy day that you are with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You love us beyond measure. Would your love be born anew in us that it would give us new eyes to see in the smallest everyday ways the millions of ways you love us and care for us beyond what we can do. Would you remind us that you're with us? Would you bless us and keep us? In the name of Jesus, who became disabled for us so that he might renew and restore us and resurrect us. Amen. Let the love that shaped earth and heaven dwell within us this Christmas. Let the love that created humanity dwell within us this Christmas. Let the love that overcomes suffering and hatred dwell within us this Christmas. Let the love that causes us to rejoice with loved ones dwell within us this Christmas. Let the love that forgives and renews dwell within us this Christmas. Let the love that brings reconciliation after separation dwell within us this Christmas. Let the love that brings the blessing of peace dwell within us this Christmas. And may we share that peace with all people near and far. Go in peace.